You're listening to the Steve Pinto Podcast, a podcast bringing you knowledge from God's Word, hoping to help you navigate through the changes in the world and the culture we live in today. Look out for Steve's new book, The Silent Exodus, now available on all platforms. You can purchase digital copies in the Apple Bookstore and Amazon.com. I wanted to take some time to personally thank you for listening to the Steve Pinto podcast and for your continued support in the release of my book, The Silent Exodus. Special thanks goes out to my beloved wife and children, to my dedicated parents, and to the Pinto family. Also, to the pastors, elders, leaders, and volunteers of Faro Church. Thank you for your continued support, encouragement, and understanding. I could not have done it without you. I also want to acknowledge the work and contribution of those who helped me along the way, especially Dr. Penny Clausen from Capital Seminary. She helped me and coached me every step of the way. Also, as I worked and prepared my writing of The Silent Exodus, the Mestizo podcast gave me language to describe the challenges at hand. The work of Emmanuel Padilla and Dr. Conde Frazier served to frame these important issues. Remember, there is a silent exodus of emerging generations from Latino churches in America. Let me encourage you to continue to take Latino teenagers and emerging adults more seriously. If we do, we can eliminate the silent exodus and set up the next generation for spiritual success. God bless. The following podcast is a recorded lecture given by Steve Pinto. I want to speak to you about the slide of moral excellence. And the main question that we are going to be dealing with today is, what are the moral character traits necessary for leading? What are the moral, the moral character traits necessary to be ready for leading? Now, I want to take the back door to this. And I want to start by telling you a story or the story of Michael Plant. Michael Plant was a passionate and experienced sailor, um, well known around the world for having traversed the oceans twice before. And so he planned to do it a third time, to traverse the oceans a third time. And so he put together a sailboat costing him $650,000. Yes, you heard me right, $650,000. So he built this vessel and he, he called it the Coyote because it was his desire to build a sailboat that would, that would be lightweight, um, and that it would be very, very, very fast. And so he utilized a new technique, whereas he built his boat out of uh, a fiberglass coat and a foam core hull. And so this combination made the, made the boat itself a very fast boat. So as he prepared to go to his third um, his his third way around the around the oceans the Atlantic Ocean 
He equipped his sailboat with the latest technology available to sailboats at that time. And it was on October the 16th that he launched from New York and headed across the Atlantic towards France for a trip of 24,000 miles. And this would take him a total of four months to traverse the Atlantic Ocean from New York all the way to France. But it didn't take long before Plant actually began to experience some trouble. And so there was a period of time where no one uh, heard from Michael Plant. And then it was not until October the 21st that a Russian freighter picked up a transmission from Michael Plant where Michael was saying, I have no power, but I'm working on the problem, he said. And then he ended his transmission with the Russians by saying, please tell my fiance not to worry. After that, he went on radio silence once again. No one heard anything from him again. And then um, after 32 days, the Coyote, this state-of-the-art racing vessel, this sailboat was finally spotted on a Sunday morning by a Greek tanker. And what was interesting was that the coyote was found drifting upside down. And the keel and the ballast had been sheared off. They had been cut off. It was, it was drifting upside down. And the sad news was that there was no sign of plant. And from that day, we've never heard of plant ever again. And so to this day, no one really knows what happened. Some people speculate that maybe it was a rogue whale or some sort of sea garbage or something faulty in the design of the boat itself. But Ultimately, although no one knows what, what caused it, although no one knows what caused it, everyone knows why the boat was upside down. It was because the, the keel and the ballast had been sheared off. And if there is no counterweight for the sailboat underneath the waterline, ultimately, that sailboat is going to be turned upside down. If there is not enough weight underneath the waterline to counteract the pressure of the wind upon the sail, then the boat is going to crash. It's going to become top heavy and it's going to be overpowered very easily by the streams of the ocean. So to put it simply, without a keel and a ballast, then the boat would be broken and it would be upside down. Now we're speaking about the slide of moral excellence. And when we talk about moral excellence, what we're talking about is the weight underneath the waterline of every leader. We're talking about the keel and the ballast of every leader. And the keel and the ballast of every leader 
is the moral character under the waterline. The weight be beneath the waterline is the character. And it is character uh, that's going to sustain the leader when he faces the trials and temptations and the burden of leadership itself. So when we're talking about the slide of moral excellence and when we're talking about what are the necessary moral traits ready for leading, we're talking about character. Now, having said that, having said that, I think that it's important for us to understand why it is that in our culture and in the world of today, leaders, and more specifically, church leadership has lost its center and its influence in the culture today. This is something that we call the decentered church or decentered leadership. I think one of the reasons why church leadership has failed this culture is because we have adopted only secular approaches to leadership in the church. And these secular approaches to leadership are much too transactional and they place the emphasis on results rather than leadership development. So in the church, we have ac accepted leadership approaches that are secular, not Christian, not biblical, that tend to be very transactional and the emphasis is placed on raw numbers rather than the development of the leader himself or the development of the character of leadership. In fact, as long as a leader can get something done, people no longer care about their character. People no longer care about what is happening under the waterline. So there is no doubt that the church in America, including the Latino church in America, it has lost its social location in the center of culture, is what we call the decentered church. Today, from culture, the church and church leadership is perceived as antiquated or obsolete. Um, and this is especially true when we think about the social discussions in the front front today. The church is no longer seen as a serious contributor to the significant debate in the general population. The church no longer leads the way. Today, morality is defined by council, culture, and not the church. Today, morality, morality is no longer defined by the word of God, and it is not preached from the church or from the church pulpit, or it's not taken serious anymore because church leadership has lost its center in culture uh, today. So cancel culture today tells us what's right and wrong, and it is no longer the word of God or the church. You see, in past times, the general population would look to pastors and the church for a moral compass. Let me say that again. In past times, the general population would look to pastors and to the church for a moral compass. But now, 
they look to celebrities and they look to influencers in social media. And it is through these celebrities and through these political influencers that people define morality today. And in many ways, from my perspective here in Southern California, the church shares some blame in this dissentured of the church because the church is experiencing what Roxburgh calls a crisis of identity. You see, the church used to preach and its leaders used to live a clear and united morality. The church used to preach and its leaders used to live a clear and united morality. But it began to present a disjointed moral expectation that confused culture. And so when there are leaders who are not living up to the expectations that they preach, this presents a vague, disjointed moral expectation that confuses culture and thereby they lose their authority in the modern culture. But I want you to think about this. One of the most, one of the most significant obstacles to the moral formation of any culture is the lack of a moral compass or ethical awareness. And what we are seeing today in the world around us is that um, is that we are we no longer base truth objectively. Truth and morality is subjective. It's what somebody feels. Whatever you feel today could be different than tomorrow. And so you can define your truth by however you feel. And this is because that moral compass has been removed. The church and its authority and its leaders have been removed because of that vague, disjointed morality that it has expressed. Yet, the observable trend in moral culture concerning the decline of moral values could be described as follows. Immorality is justified and then accepted. Then it is normalized. Then it is institutionalized. Then it is encouraged, then celebrated, then indoctrinated. Then it mocks and persecutes the opposing view and then moral objectives are forgotten. And sadly, this is the reality that we see um, too often today. But as I said, I think that the church and church leaders share some blame in, in this crisis of identity. And now what we see in culture is that immorality is justified, it's accepted, it's been normalized, it's been institutionalized. That is to say that it's been, uh, it's been added to the curriculum of what we teach our children and we now encourage immorality even in our children uh even though children don't know what the heck is happening we we want to we want to indoctrinate them in immorality um and then it's celebrated and we we begin to see now how the church uh and christianity is being is beginning to be mocked and persecuted even further and further into the outskirts of of the culture itself and then ultimately what's going to happen is that moral objectives are going to be forgotten. And when you think about it, this is really sad because if we do get to that point where moral objectives are forgotten, then that means that people don't know what to re repent from. You see, 
every sin is forgivable except the ones you don't know you have to repent from. Every sin is forgivable except the ones you don't know you have to repent from. And so if the enemy is successful in moving an entire culture to the, to the point where moral objectives are forgotten, then you have an entire um, society that doesn't even know that they're sinning. And so the challenge for us is, as leaders, is to clearly define what sin is and to live by example. Otherwise, people will never know what to repent from. If the devil is not successful in tempting people into immoral behavior, he will get leaders to change doctrine to allow for it. And, and I think we, we cannot allow secular thought or counterculture to make faith a civil issue. Um, there is this quote, very famous quote, that is attributed to various political and church leaders that traces the stages of Christianity through the process of 2,000 years of history. I've seen this quote be attributed to a number of people here on your screen. I'm just going to attribute it to Halverson. But he said, in the first century in Palestine, Christianity was a community of believers. Then Christianity moved to Greece and it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome and it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe and it became a culture. Then it moved to America and it became a business. And there lies the problem. As summarized there by the quote, you, you think the modern demands of life have seemed to place scriptural approaches to leadership in peril. When we think of the church here in America as simply a, biz, a business, then we're only going to create leaders who are working for the bottom line. That is to say, what are the numbers? The emphasis is going to be on the numbers, on hard numbers, on targets, but not on discipleship and not on moral excellence. You see, an emphasis on streamlined organizations and results provides good systems and good structures, but it leaves the church without a moral center. And so an emphasis on secular organizational leadership and results-focused leadership that have influenced the contemporary church of today can provide us with really good structure and really good systems but we're going to lack the necessary character. I like what Ledbetter, um, Banks, and Greenhalgh have to say here. They say, many churches have achieved generous success while leaving its leadership and laity vulnerable to moral failure. An emphasis on numbers and hard targets rather than love, discipleship, and moral excellence has made the church lose its core mission. So the problem is perhaps the lack of tools and resources available to church leaders 
that emphasize moral development. A lot of the leadership lit literature and classes that we see today, they focus on a secular, streamlined focus on leadership that focuses only on the hard numbers. And so this lack of scriptural basis can lead to an unscriptural focus. The lack of scriptural basis in leadership can lead to an unscriptural focus. Secular approaches to leadership are much too transactional and they place the emphasis, they place the emphasis uh, far too much on results rather than development. And so churches today who are striving to be more, hol uh, more uh, holistic in their leadership, they must emphasize a leadership of faithfulness, of integrity, of morality, and of service. Okay, so there is a slide of moral excellence in the, in the church leadership today. Why? Well, because we have accepted a secular approach to leadership. And so the consequence of that is seen in what we're calling the Bathsheba syndrome. This is actually a term coined by Ledbetter, Banks, and Greenhalgh, who, who point to this idea that since the church has accepted a secular approach to leadership, the church has been lacking ethical sustainability that rests in large part with its senior leaders and pastors. This is what Ledbetter calls the Bathsheba syndrome. Now, if you're familiar with Bathsheba, you know that this is the woman with whom King David committed adultery with and also led to the cover-up of, um, of her husband, the, the murder of her husband. And so King David, who was a man after God's own heart, he grew complacent. And because he did that, disastrous results followed. So King David is a good example of the disastrous results that a high-level leader can expect if he or she stopped focusing on virtue and on moral character as emphasized by the scriptures. And moral failure among church leaders and pastors is happening at a shocking frequency in America today. This is something that we hear um, much too often today. Um, don't mean to throw any, any, any names out there. And God, may God have mercy upon me. May God have mercy upon us. But high-level leadership, people like Carl Lenz, the Hill, Hillsong pastor in New York, or even, you know, one of my heroes, Rabbi Zacharias, we hear of their moral failure, and it breaks our heart. Moral failure among pastors is happening with shocking frequency and and it's happening with high-level leaders 
um, just like with King David, perhaps high level leaders um, that have lost their focus or have grown complacent in fighting that internal uh, war towards virtue and moral character. According to a survey done by Winter, it revealed that one of eight pastors has committed adultery since they've been in local church, um, church leadership. Almost one of four admitting to doing something they feel was sexually inappropriate. And one out of five acknowledged fantasizing at least weekly about sex with someone other than their spouse. And if you widen that question to monthly, the number grows to over one out of three. So that was a survey done back in 1988. One out of eight pastors committed adultery, one out of four admitting doing something sexually inappropriate, and then one out of five fantasizing. Now, in a more recent study, in a more recent study, in an ongoing study done by the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development, they found that um, of the 1,050 pastors that they surveyed, every one of them had a close associate or seminary buddy who had left the ministry because of burnout, conflict in their church, or from moral failure. And so part of that moral development or that inner development that we've been talking about, that inner life that we've been talking about, facing our shadow. All of that that we've been talking about leads to what we see here in this survey, that out of 1,050 of those pastors surveyed, they all knew somebody who left ministry because of burnout, conflict in the church, or moral failure. And so uh, the survey also says that 1,500 pastors, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. So this speaks both to the lack of a moral center or character underneath the waterline, right? And then also the moral, the moral strength in terms of uh, uh, victimhood or the strength to endure difficult circumstances. The survey also found 315 uh, pastors who said that they had either been in an ongoing affair or a one-time sexual encounter with a parishioner. That's about 30% of all pastors. And then here's the striking, um, the striking truth. Almost 40% polled said that they had an extramarital affair since beginning their ministry. These are all very sad numbers. Now, um, it is important for us to, to look at this clearly, from a clear perspective. Um, I think it was Billy Graham who was asked during a time where there was a lot of high-profile church leaders who had fallen in moral failure, and they asked him about it, and he said, you know what, when, when an airplane crashes, when there's a, a, an airplane crash, Everybody hears about it, right? But he says, I want you to think about all of the thousands and thousands of flights that take off and land 
with no problems whatsoever. He says, yes, there is a lot of pastors with moral failure. And when they fall, you're going to hear about it. But don't forget that there's hundreds and thousands of faithful pastors and leaders who are faithful to their churches and faithful to their wives. So that's an important um, contrast to keep in mind. Still, we, need, we, we still need to think, though, about just the consequences of when a high-level leader or even a church leader falls into moral sin. You know, when a leader falls into moral sin, it always wrecks havoc on the cause of Christ. And I've seen, I'm, I'm seeing that today with Carl Lentz and Ravi Zachariah. It's just it's so sad to see the attacks from atheists and attacks from the enemies of the church coming against the church. See, the more visible and well-known the leader, the greater harm to the cause of Christ. Also, some in the church justify their own sin by thinking, oh, well, if that strong leader is doing that, then I could do the same thing, right? So we justify our action through the mistakes of others. And so if that leader fell, then why do I have to fight this? fight you know another consequence is that divisions arise among churches and among christians because every time a high level leader falls there's always this discussion right about tolerance and love right we should we should forgive the leader and we should be there for him and we need to be tolerant and help him um, and then there's the other side of the discussion. No, they need to go into discipline. They need to be removed from public ministry. And then there's this uh, this, this crazy, you know, um, infighting between the church. And then ultimately the world mocks the whole thing. And then they shrug off the gospel. So it's crucial for the church to think about moral development. Because... We need to put godly men and godly women into leadership and to make sure that they remain like that. But the question is, how do we do that? How can we do everything possible to ensure that our church leaders are godly men and godly women? Well, I think the answer could be found in returning to a scriptural emphasis on leadership. Rather than emphasizing secular approaches to leadership, I think we need to emphasize biblical and scriptural emphasis on leadership. And as you know, um, the, the Bible has very high standards for people who are going to lead the church. Any scripturally formed leader must be aware of the necessary character-shaping foundations found in Scripture. Uh, you can find... You can find those in the pastoral letters, right? You can find those in Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, and then the second letter to Timothy, and also in Titus. But one example that we can think about here is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, where Paul, he lists several areas in which a person that is aspiring to church leadership must evaluate or must be evaluated, and, and, and these things must be met in order for that person to be above repro reproach. Um, and so notice, if you open up your Bibles there to 1 Timothy 
to First Timothy, and again we're looking at the third chapter. Um, what you what you see there initially is that Paul does not want to discourage anyone from answering the call of God, right? So he starts in verse one. Here is a trustworthy saying: Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So he's saying, okay. If someone wants to be in church leadership, that's a noble task. That's fine. But you need to be aware of this. He continues in verse 2. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, right? Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness or not addicted to wine, but gentle, not violent, not quarrelsome, and not a lo lover of money. It goes on to say, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a matter worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have good reputation with the outsiders so that he will not fall into the disgrace and into the devil's trap. So you see that, that what is necessary for church leadership is moral character that has to do with your home life, has to do with spiritual maturity, it has to do with your public reputation. And then Paul demands that church leaders must be above reproach. Above reproach. Now, what does this mean, above reproach? Well, it comes from a Greek word, particle, that emphasize, emphasizes the idea that this person um, has nothing uh, that anybody can use to hold against them. That is to say that, that there is no evidence that can be utilized against that person in what they're accusing him of doing. And so he's to be above reproach. Of course, obviously, this does, this does not mean that you know leaders never sin and that leaders are perfect. It doesn't mean that. Obviously, it does not mean that the leader has not committed sins in their life. What it does mean is that their life has not been marred by some obvious, simple defect in character, which would preclude him or her from setting the highest standard for godly conduct. So the leader is to be a model for the congregation and then a model for the people and the community that he leads. Now, I really like what MacArthur provides in his New Testament commentary of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And he provides for us, um, he provides several reasons why pastors must take great care to remain above reproach. Number one, he says, because, because they are special targets of Satan. They're what? Special targets of Satan. As you know, this is a spiritual war. This is spiritual warfare. And so Satan is going to try to hit those um, who 
are um, who are in the front lines of the spiritual battle. Second, the fall of the leader has greater potential for, for harm. So if a leader falls, then Satan knows that if a shepherd falls, that's going to affect the sheep and it's going to devastate them. Third, leaders um, bring greater chastening when they sin. And so Satan knows, uh, uh, Satan knows that there is a greater consequence. Uh, there's a greater discipline for those who are in higher levels of leadership. Um, I remind you that it is in the book of James, uh, book of James chapter three, right? Is it chapter three? Yeah, chapter three, where it talks about not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So if you're in leadership, you know, you need to remember the words of the movie Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And then fourthly, elders' sins are more hypocritical than others. Why? Well, because they're, they, they're leading. They're preaching against the very sins that they are committing. And so we as leaders need an abundance of God's grace and power because of the great responsibility and the visibility that we have as leaders. Okay. So how do we protect ourselves? What are some steps that we can take against the Bathsheba syndrome? Well, let me mention three, maybe four. Okay. Three, maybe four, and then we'll go into a time of discussion. How can we protect ourselves? Well, I think that we need to, um, I like, uh, I like what Ledbetter says. Ledbetter says, and I, I appreciate what he says here, and I think it, it's good for us as a foundational piece here as we talk about the steps um, to protect ourselves. But he talks about the idea that leaders must live a balanced life. He talks about, remember that you are a steward of the organization. And then he talks about the idea of accountability and composing an ethical team of peers who will develop deep humility and maintain accountability. So that's a good start. You know, I think Ledbetter, Banks, and Greenhalt provide for us something to begin to think about. The idea of, you know, um, emotional health, the idea of, um, of taking care of ourselves, um, um, and then the idea of accountability. Now, let me give you three specific ways in which we can protect ourselves extending out of that. The first one comes out of an example called the Modesto Manifesto. The Modesto Manifesto. Now, um, I remind you, I remind you that, um, that it was back in 1948 where Billy Graham, you guys know who Billy Graham is? I mean, if you're a Christian, you need to know who Billy Graham is. It's, that's like saying I'm a basketball player and I don't know who Jordan is or I don't know who Kobe is, right? Billy Graham is the greatest preacher in Christian history. He has preached to mo more people, to most people, than anybody has ever preached to with the gospel message. But it was back in 1948, during a time in which Americans were hungry for the gospel coming out of 
a post-war. The Americans flocked his uh, his preaching uh, revivals, and people would come and listen to him. And he was so successful uh, as a preacher. And and as you know, with great power also comes you know uh, people who wanted to cling on to you. And so he began to see that in his ministry. There was there was politicians, there was entertainers who began to connect themselves with Billy Graham because, you know, they if they know Billy Graham, you know, that, that was a big thing for them. And so as politicians and entertainers saw to promote themselves, they would connect themselves to Billy Graham and temptations were everywhere. Temptations were everywhere. Temptations in terms of money, sex, power, all over the place. And so what Billy Graham with his team did, his team made of Bev Shea, Grady Wilson, and Cliff Barrows, they, in order to protect themselves and to be above reproach, they began to um, draft as they gathered um, in a Modesto hotel room in Modesto, California, they began to draft what is now known as the Modesto Manifesto, where they spoke of ways in which they were going to protect themselves um, from the temptations of leadership. And so this included, you know, provisions for the distributing of money avoiding criticism of local churches and pastors, working with only churches that had an emphasis on evangelism, to not over-exaggerate the number of people that would attend uh, their revivals. And then, and then also they drafted the idea that no one in their leadership would ever be in a room alone with a person uh, of the opposite sex ever. And so the manifesto called for each man, especially Billy Graham, to never be alone with a woman other than his wife. And then Graham from that day, from that day forward, he pledged not to eat or travel or meet with a woman other than his wife Ruth unless other people are present or were present. And so the Modesto Manifesto speaks to that idea of accountability, right? And holding ourselves accountable in order to be above reproach. But a second step, I think, in order to overcome the Bathsheba syndrome that we need to think about is the Bible. You know, the Bible. We need to, you know, we talked about in this class already the stones. Remember, we talked about stones and how David, he went to the stream to look for smooth stones. And those stones were smooth because they were constantly being exposed to the stream of the water. In the very same way, we as leaders need to expose ourselves to the word of God. We have to be constantly nourished on the words of scripture in order to build a strong moral center. I remind you of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119 and verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against 
you what do you do you hide the word in your heart so that you don't sin against god so as leaders we need to make sure we have a daily intake of god's word we have a devotional life we're seeking god a leader must continually expose their life to the stream of god's word and then we need to add prayer to that meditation we need to seek god we need to be connected to god so the modesto manifesto the word of god and then um just wage the war thirdly wage the war so in first peter chapter one verses five through nine it says this for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith okay i want to focus on that for a second because here peter is talking about salvific faith salvific faith is the faith that we utilize at the point of our salvation right so peter is saying we need to add to our justification right to our point of salvation we need to add more so faith in itself is not enough to keep us from the dark side of leadership what do we do well to the idea of being saved what do we do we need to add what do we add goodness knowledge self-control perseverance godliness mutual affection love and then he goes on to say for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our lord jesus christ but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed for their past sins so spiritually formed leaders add the character qualities necessary to face the bathsheba syndrome right faith is not in itself is not enough this is something that we do in salvation jesus saved us it was what he did is what he does on the cross it's salvation it's free for, but from that point forward we need to die to self in this case we need to add the necessary character qualities we need to move from good intentions to great intentionality and we have to wage a war against our flesh wage a war against our sin it's a battle i like how brooks puts it people who live this way believe that character is not innate or automatic you have to build it with effort and artistry you can't be the good person you want to be unless you wage this campaign you won't even achieve external success unless you build a solid moral core if you don't have some inner integrity eventually your watergate your scandal and your betrayal will happen okay so how do we uh combat how do we combat the bathsheba syndrome well i think that we need to um we need to set up accountability structures like the modesto manifesto we need to get ourselves into the word of god we need to have a devotional life and then we need to wage that war and then i think perhaps the fourth one before we go into our, our little break here is the idea of of emotional intelligence and this has to do with your identity and understanding who you are as a person and understanding um who you are 
in terms of your personality. What fills you? What drains you? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? It's, it's being intelligent about your emotions in your life, right? And so we often think of IQ, right? IQ is, um, is your intellectual quotient. It's how, when we say how high is your IQ, we're talking about how smart you are, right? Well, EQ or emo, uh, emotional quotient is a way in which we can think about our emotional health and who we are on the inside and our ability to comprehend and control and develop our own feelings while also being able to understand and manage the feelings of others. A great leader emphasizes how their emotions affect others and how they can use that knowledge to create positive outcomes. And so, um, emotional intelligence. I think it's another way that we can combat, we can combat the Bathsheba syndrome, knowing more about who we, we are. Um, some benefits of emotional intelligence as given to us by Brett Kohler. Number one, internal awareness. The best leaders are self-aware not only of their emotions, but also their weaknesses and limitations, as well as their strength. Second, another, another benefit is self-regulation. And so the more you know about yourself, you know your limitations. And so the better you're going to be able to regulate yourself and not fall into burnout, for instance, right? Or to overextend yourself. The other one is increased empathy. Um, the irony about emotional intelligence is that the more you have a good understanding of your own emotional state, the more accurately you're going to be able to gauge the emotions of others. Uh, the other benefit is collaborative communication, collaborative communication. What we, what uh, Barrett and Kohler mean is that because they understand their organizations, emotionally intelligent leaders can immediately pick up the tone of a room or a group and subsequently speak with honesty and sincerity. And so um, this leads to better communication in the team. And then less there's no way of avoiding the burden of leadership. There's no way of avoiding the stress of leadership. But what you can do is navigate, navigate it. And so how can you navigate it? Get to know yourself better, right? Leaders with emotional intelligence manage, um, manage their stress better because they know how not to let the stress consume them. Thanks for listening. Tune in to next week's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. Look out for Steve's new book, The Silent Exodus, now available on all platforms. You can purchase digital copies in the Apple Bookstore and Amazon.com.